Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. By the beginning of the 3rd century BCE, Rome and Carthage were the two most powerful states in the Western Mediterranean. Too many modern accounts of the Punic Wars have stereotyped them as diametric opposites. Carthage was supposedly a money-making enterprise controlled by wealthy, cunning merchants, while Rome was a community of farmers ruled by tough, honorable, pious, proudly unsophisticated nobles. In reality, Rome and Carthage had much in common. Both originated as city-states, before expanding into major powers controlling immense territories. Both had similar forms of government. They were republics where authority and formal power were vested in magistrates, who were elected by citizen assemblies and advised by councils of elders. Both were in practice dominated by small elites consisting of powerful and wealthy aristocratic families. Any discussion of Carthage has to confront a fundamental problem. The Punic Wars offer one of the earliest and best examples of history being written by the winners. The destruction of the city by the Romans in 146 BCE was so total that nearly no Carthaginian records survive. The Carthaginian voice has therefore been almost completely silenced. What little information is left about Carthage is almost entirely found in Greek and Roman sources, which are highly critical, if not openly hostile. These sources have to be handled with enormous care, taking into account their many biases, both overt and subtle. Even so, any conclusions we can draw about Carthage and the Carthaginians must necessarily be provisional and partial. According to legend, Carthage was founded in 814 BCE by Princess Elisa of Tyre. Elisa was later immortalized as Dido by the greatest of all Roman poets, Virgil, in his masterpiece, the Aeneid. So much for mythical origins. What we can say with certainty is that Carthage was settled sometime in the last third of the 9th century BCE as a colony of the powerful Phoenician city-state of Tyre. The Phoenicians, called Punici in Latin, from which we derive Punic, were from the coast of present-day Lebanon and were the greatest seafaring people of the ancient Mediterranean world. The foundation of Carthage was part of a tremendous burst of maritime expansion that saw the Phoenicians establish colonies as far away as Spain and chart sea routes out into the Atlantic. Very quickly after its foundation, Carthage, or Carthadasht, new city in the Punic language, became by far the most successful of all the Phoenician colonies. Its location was ideal for trans-Mediterranean trade. It possessed the finest harbor on the North African coast, and it had access to an extensive hinterland. Carthage was located on an arrow-shaped peninsula that jutted eastward into what is now called the Gulf of Tunis. The peninsula measured nine kilometers from north to south. Most of it was given over to farms, orchards, vineyards, and the villas of the Carthaginian aristocracy. The city itself covered some 300 hectares at the southern end of the peninsula. Overlooking the city was a high hill called Birsa, on which were the citadel and the main temples. Carthage was otherwise dominated by its famous twin enclosed harbors. The teeming piers and docks of the rectangular merchant harbor welcomed cargo ships 
from all over the Mediterranean. The circular naval harbor was lined with covered slipways for warships, and an island at its center served as the headquarters for Carthage's admirals. The entire peninsula was encircled by massive walls. Triple walls closed off the isthmus, connecting the peninsula to the mainland. These fortifications rendered Carthage impregnable to assault. One of our chief sources for Carthage's political system is the Greek philosopher Aristotle. In his Politics, Aristotle analyzes the constitution of Carthage, the only non-Greek state he treats. Carthage was originally a monarchy. At some point, the kings lost power and their functions were appropriated by a whole cadre of republican officials or magistrates. The chief magistrates were the two soufettes, who functioned as heads of state and were elected annually by the citizen assembly. They performed civil functions only. Military duties were in the hands of generals. In Punic, a general was called Arab Mahanet, or chief of the army. These generals were elected by the citizens for indefinite durations. Soufettes and generals alike were advised by a council of elders, a senate. Called the Adarim or Mighty Ones, this senate likely consisted of 300 members drawn from the wealthiest and most powerful citizens. The senators also formed the Court of 104, a tribunal which supervised Carthage's generals and admirals. It could condemn a commander, judge responsible for a defeat, to death by crucifixion. The leading historian of Carthage, Dexter Hoyos, argues persuasively that Carthaginian politics was an affair of powerful aristocratic families. These families competed fiercely with each other for possession of the offices of the state. Despite the importance of trade to Carthage's economy, none of the identifiable families were connected to commerce. Instead, they were all great landowners. Frequently, the leader of an aristocratic family would rise to a position of dominance. Such a leader would control the republic through a network of well-placed relatives, friends, allies, and clients. Leading men could even pass on their dominant positions to successors, effectively creating ruling dynasties. Hannibal Barca is just the last and best-known example of this phenomenon. The population of Carthage was diverse, but divided into a strict and highly unequal hierarchy. The descendants of the original settlers were the only full citizens. At the beginning of the Punic Wars, they numbered around 575,000, mostly living in and around the city itself. Next to the citizens and rights and status were the inhabitants of the other old Phoenician colonies of North Africa, such as Hippu Acra, Utica, and Hadrumetum. These so-called Libby Phoenicians shared the same laws as Carthaginian citizens and had rights to trade with Carthage. In return, they had to contribute to Carthage's military enterprises. By the 3rd century, Carthage controlled a sprawling hinterland that included much of modern-day Tunisia. Carthaginian-controlled North Africa was called Libya. Watered by the Bagradas, Siliana, and Mutul rivers, it was an extraordinarily fertile territory that the Carthaginians farmed systematically and scientifically. After Carthage's fall in 146 BCE, the Roman Senate ordered the farming encyclopedia of the Punic agronomist Mago translated into Latin. Moreover, until the end of the Roman Empire, Libya was one of the eternal city's breadbaskets. The Carthaginians ruthlessly subjugated and closely controlled the native North Africans. 
the Libyans. They were heavily taxed and required to supply troops to Carthage's armies. These exactions often provoked the Libyans to rise up and rebel against Carthage. Libby Phoenicians and Libyans together totaled some two million people. To the west of Libya were the lands of the Numidians, the native Berber peoples of North Africa. Some Numidian kingdoms were vassals or allies of Carthage. Others were enemies. The Numidians were famous horsemen. As we'll see, Numidian cavalry formed a formidable and famous part of Hannibal's army. Carthage also ruled extensive territories beyond North Africa. Sardinia was another traditional site of Phoenician colonization. These colonies and the coastal plains of the island came under Carthaginian domination by the start of the 5th century BCE. But the main Carthaginian overseas territory was Sicily. The western half of the island was a Carthaginian province, dubbed the Epicratea in Greek, and included major Punic settlements at Lilibium, Drapana, and Panormus. Eastern Sicily was Greek, and included such wealthy and powerful city-states as Akragas and Syracuse. Rivalry between the two peoples was constant. Before the collision with Rome, Carthage fought its greatest wars against the Sicilian Greeks. This Carthaginian empire had been created and was held together by force. Even today, Carthage is celebrated as a naval power. Service in the fleet was the main military obligation of Carthaginian citizens. Carthage could put 100 or even 200 warships to sea. By the beginning of the Punic Wars, these warships were kinkirems, the state-of-the-art battleships of Mediterranean naval warfare. The kinkirem was so-called because it had five rowers in each vertical bank of three oars, two rowers on the top oar, two on the middle, and one on the bottom. Much larger than the classical trireme, a kinkirem was crewed by some 300 rowers and 100 marines. Yet Carthage's naval prowess has been overestimated. As Dexter Hoyos points out, even before the First Punic War, the Carthaginian navy lost as many battles as it won. Furthermore, the navy was usually used to support the Carthaginian army by transporting troops or supporting sieges. The Carthaginians also adopted the Kinkirem only long after its invention by the navies of the Hellenistic kingdoms of the eastern Mediterranean. Carthage's Kinkirems first saw action against the Romans in the First Punic War. By contrast to the navy, the Carthaginian army's strength and size have tended to be overlooked. In the army, Carthaginian citizens served only as officers or in special units in direct defense of their city. Much of the rank and file were Libyan conscripts. In addition, Carthage's vast wealth allowed its generals to hire large numbers of mercenaries from across the Mediterranean. Numidians, Spaniards, Balearic Islanders, Gauls, Greeks, and Italians from Liguria, Samnium, and Brutium filled the Carthaginian ranks. Later, we will take a close look at the most famous Carthaginian army of them all, the superb force Hannibal took against Rome. By the time of the Punic Wars, Carthaginian culture was a dynamic mixture of Phoenician, Greek, Egyptian, and Numidian influences. The Carthaginian elites were steeped in Greek high culture and were in touch with the latest intellectual and cultural currents. The Romans and Greeks, however, always disparaged the Carthaginians as cunning and completely untrustworthy. Punic faith was a Latin byword for perfidy and treachery. 
This reputation for underhandedness was exaggerated. But another far more disturbing charge against the Carthaginians appears to be true, that they sacrificed their own children to their gods. Scholars of the ancient world long dismissed this charge as Greek and Roman propaganda against their enemies. In 2014, however, leading Punic archaeologists and historians from British, Italian, and Dutch universities published an article concluding that the overwhelming literary, epigraphic, and archaeological evidence indicates that the Carthaginians did practice child sacrifice. They ritually killed male and female infants at special sites called tophets. These offerings occurred infrequently, perhaps 25 times a year in Carthage, and were done to bring divine favor to the entire community. The existence of child sacrifice among the Carthaginians should remind us that we are dealing with people who are very different from us in some fundamental ways. As Josephine Quinn, one of the lead authors of the 2014 article, puts it, we like to think that we're quite close to the ancient world, that they were really just like us. The truth is, I'm afraid, that they really weren't. As Carthage was waxing in power and wealth, Rome was mastering the Italian peninsula. Rome had been founded in 753 BCE by the mythical twins Romulus and Remus. It was the largest city-state of Latium. It was the largest city-state of Latium, the region of central Italy inhabited by the Latin people. It enjoyed a strategic location at a key crossing of the Tiber River and close to important coastal salt flats. Like Carthage, Rome was originally a monarchy. And like the Carthaginians, the Romans disposed of their kings, in their case, in the year 509 BCE, and replaced them with a republic governed by elected magistrates. The most important and powerful of these magistrates were the two consuls who served as the republic's heads of state for a term of one year. Immediately below them were the praetors, judges who handled the most serious legal cases. By the time of the Second Punic War, the praetors numbered four. The Republic also had a plethora of minor magistrates, aediles, quaestors, censors, and tribunes. All of these magistrates were elected by the Roman citizens, who were organized and enrolled in a quite dizzying array of assemblies, each with its own specific powers and responsibilities. Unlike their Carthaginian counterparts, the highest-ranking Roman magistrates had both civilian and military functions. The power to command armies was called imperium. The principal possessors of Imperium were the two consuls, who were the Republic's chief generals, and commanded its most important armies. The only other magistrates invested with Imperium were the four praetors, who could command secondary armies. Possession of Imperium was visibly manifested by a retinue of lictors, special bodyguards who carried the fasces, an axe wrapped in a bundle of rods. Consuls had twelve lictors, praetors six. In 1921, Benito Mussolini adopted the fascists for his new political party, which is how we get the terms fascist and fascism. The most powerful political body in the Republic was the Senate. It was a council of about 300 members appointed for life by the censors from ex-magistrates and leading citizens. Like the Carthaginian Adirim, the Roman Senate's principal official role was to give advice to the magistrates and the citizen assemblies. Its formal legal powers were limited, but its informal authority, what Romans called auctoritas, was vast. Unlike the annually elected consuls, the Senate was a permanent assembly with a continuous existence. 
it could therefore give consistency and continuity to the Republic's policies. The senators were the most experienced and most well-informed citizens in the state. They were also invariably the leading members of Rome's wealthiest and most eminent families. Therefore, the Senate's resolutions, the Senatus Consulta, while technically non-binding on magistrates, were, in effect, commands. Only an exceptionally confident or foolhardy magistrate would even contemplate disobeying them. During the conflicts against Carthage, the Senate was the mastermind of the Roman war effort. The greater majority of Roman citizens could not become or even aspire to become a magistrate. Magistrates were unpaid, which automatically excluded all but the wealthiest Romans from service in the government of the Republic. Yet even among the Roman elites, attaining the highest magisterial offices of consul and praetor usually only happened occasionally. By the 3rd century BCE, just 30 families still regularly reached high offices. Even so, most of these elite families, such as the ancient Julii, could only manage it from time to time. Only a handful of families, such as the Aemilii, Claudii, Cornelii, Fabii, Manlii, and Valerii, could expect to attain the senior magistracies in every generation. Therefore, just as in Carthage, the politics of the Roman Republic had become an affair of aristocratic dynasties. From its earliest days, the Roman Republic was expansionist. It first subdued the city-states of the Etruscans, a people who had once ruled over Rome. A milestone was reached in 338 BCE when Rome asserted its hegemony over all of the other Latin communities. For the next seven decades, the Republic expanded southwards. Rome's advance sparked three monumental wars against the Samnites, who dominated the hill country of south-central Italy. In these wars, Rome suffered setbacks, such as the Battle of the Caudine Forks in 321 BCE, when the Samnites encircled an entire Roman army and forced its surrender. But the Samnites were finally defeated by 290 BCE. The Romans moved next against the wealthy and powerful Greek city-states of southern Italy. In 272, the greatest of these city-states, Tarentum, fell. Then, in 270 BCE, Regium, located on the toe of Italy at the shores of the Sicilian Straits, submitted to Rome. The Roman Republic now dominated the Italian peninsula, only the valley of the Po River in North Italy, home to powerful tribes of warlike Gauls, still escaped Roman control. Narrating the story of Roman expansion naturally begs an important question. What drove it? The answer, advanced by Theodore Mommsen, the greatest of all classicists, was that Roman expansion was essentially defensive in nature. Rome was the victim of aggressive neighbors and fought wars to protect itself. To put an end to their neighbors' threats, the Romans annexed them. In other words, Rome acquired an empire largely by accident. Momzen's thesis has been astonishingly durable. Only after the 1980s did Roman historians beginning with William Harris provide a different answer. Rome's expansion was rooted in the values of Roman society, particularly the aristocracy. Rome's aristocrats fiercely competed with each other for honor and social distinction. The highest form of social distinction was successful service in the highest offices of the Republic. In turn, successful service demanded fighting victorious wars that added to Rome's territory, increased its resources, and subjugated its enemies. Holders of imperium therefore actively pursued wars. 
But the Roman aristocracy was not alone in being warlike. The common Roman citizen who voted for the consuls and the praetors also wanted and expected war. As we'll see, these citizens formed the rank and file of the Republic's armies. Victory over their enemies means that these citizen soldiers were enriched by booty. When Tarentum fell to the Republic in 272 BCE, for example, the Romans thoroughly sacked the city and sold 30,000 of its inhabitants as slaves. The proceeds of this plunder profited aristocratic commanders and ordinary soldiers both. Far from fighting wars only to defend itself, Rome was an aggressive imperialist power. The Romans always fought until final victory. Not for them an honorable peace based on negotiated terms. They only ended wars when they had secured a thoroughly dominant position over their enemies. The Romans were not just aggressive imperialists, they were also superb imperialists. The Romans had a genius for absorbing and integrating conquered peoples. Virtually alone among ancient states and empires, the Romans were willing to grant citizenship to outsiders. In 343, Capua, perhaps the second city of Italy and the dominant community in the rich region of Campania, joined the Roman state for protection against the Samnites. The Capuans received the status of Civitas Sine Suffragio, or citizenship without the vote. They could move freely to Rome while accepting Roman direction of their foreign and military affairs. When the Romans reordered Latium in 338, when the Romans reordered Latium in 338, many Latin communities were given Roman citizenship. The rest became bound to Rome by alliances. These allies were permitted to govern themselves. In exchange, they accepted Roman control of their foreign relations and agreed to fight alongside Rome in its wars. The Romans came to forge similar alliances with all of their conquered foes. Thus, former enemies added to Rome's military strength. To bind its allies even closer to itself, Rome established numerous colonies of Roman and Latin settlers throughout Italy. The extension of Roman citizenship and the creation of an alliance system that eventually came to embrace all of Italy gave Rome a tremendous reservoir of military manpower. The Roman magistrates maintained a survey of the Republic's manpower called the Formula Togatorum. In 225 BCE, just seven years before the outbreak of the Second Punic War, the Formula Togatorum gave a total of men able to bear arms among Rome's citizens and allies at 700,000 infantry and 70,000 cavalry. Even if Rome was not yet a Mediterranean empire, it was already a military superpower. But the ultimate key to Rome's expansion was the toughness and fighting prowess of its celebrated legions. In the next part of the podcast, we will examine how the Roman legions were raised, armed, organized, and led. Above all, we will focus on how they fought. Not least, we will try to catch a glimpse of the fierce face of Roman battle. <laughs>